be in Psalm 139 today. Psalm 139, you have uh, the first four verses in your handouts. We're going to read through all of Psalm 139. Um, so why don't we do that? Would you all stand? Stand with me. Reverence for God's Word. Psalm 139 begins for the choir director, a psalm of David. It's just prescript that's telling us who wrote it. Uh, These are intended to be songs sung by God's people. So, starting in verse 1, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I'm unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, Even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me, how vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I'm still with you. God, if only you would kill the wicked, you bloodthirsty men stay away from me, who invoke you deceitfully. Your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you? And detest those who rebel against you? I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. All right, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, right here with us, would you help us now uh, to see in uh, new and deeper and more profound ways how present you are with us? Holy Spirit, would you help us to be even more aware of, of ourselves the burdens we're carrying in here this morning, the pain we're bringing in here this morning. 
uh, the longing that we're bringing in here? And would you open our eyes to the glory, the splendor, the beauty, the majesty, the power of Jesus Christ today? Please knit us more and more together as a people. Um, Equip us, prepare us, form us that we could be your hands and feet in our city. Giving ourselves away in love um, and entrusting you to use us for your purpose in our generation, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, you can go ahead and take a seat. So I want you to think about with me for a second. I have a question. When are you most self-conscious? Like, when are you most aware of yourself? Like, if you've ever had those moments where you almost feel like you're observing yourself from outside of yourself, kind of hyper-aware, for me, without question, it's when I'm around other pastors. Yeah, it's funny, right? Pastors. It's the comparison thing. It's the, it's the like, oh, a lot of times when I'm around people, I feel like, a, like an outlier in a lot of ways. There aren't that many pastors around. But when I get into a room with many others, instantly, like, I'm, I'm reflecting on my behavior, on what I'm wearing. I'm looking and observing and learning, like, what are other people doing in the room? It's also where I'm most judgmental. I wonder what it is for you. Is it similar in the occupation like sphere where you're around people that have the same occupation as you or the same major as you, the same area of study as you, the same life stage as you? Is it something altogether different? Does it have to do with more your story, your narrative, pain in your life, hope, longing? The reason that that's important is because as we look to Psalm 139 today and as we want to understand how can we become people of prayer, I think there is one thing that we haven't talked about yet that might be the lowest hanging thing for us to grow in. For us to even feel like we're moving downhill all of a sudden, that prayer would become more natural for us. It is simply this. What if we just became radically honest with God? What if prayer simply was us being honest about where we are, about what we're feeling, what we're concerned with, and being with God in the midst of that? And what self-consciousness has to do with honesty is because self-consciousness tempts us to not be ourselves, to actually become dishonest to put on a facade and an appearance, to put on a show, or to separate ourselves in judgment towards other people. And there was one thing that Jesus did over and over and over and over again in his life when he would come into contact with with people. The people who were more likely to be totally ashamed entering into the presence of the one who was God incarnate Jesus communicated that God knew them. Take the woman at the well, immersed and steeped in a life 
of disappointment being used by men. And five husbands, Jesus says. He, he communicates that God knew her in a way that she was veiled in shame. She would approach the, this well at noon when no one else would be there in the heat of the day because of the shame that she was carrying. And Jesus communicated in her surprise that God actually knew her and was still pursuing her. Jesus tends to draw near to. God still tends to draw out those who are tempted towards, in honesty, being ashamed of who they are. Flip the script, and those who tended towards pride, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, those who put on the facade of religiosity, Jesus would call out their hypocrisy. He would seek to soften uh, their hardened exterior by poking holes in their religious performance. Jesus desires radical honesty from his people. And yet, we also need to hold with that a radical degree of openness to Jesus changing and transforming what we're honest about, who we are. If we can learn to hold together radical honesty with where we are, what we are, what we're experiencing, and at the same time an openness to God changing us, transforming us, we'll experience a deep sense of rich soil, I think, that lives of prayer and becoming a community of prayer can grow in. You agree? See that? I think in Psalm 139, what we see over and over and over again is David, King David, the author of this psalm, teasing out all of these different ways in which honesty before God is cultivated. He stirs himself to remember that God knows us through and through. He says in verse 1, Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know everything about me. Continues on. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You know what I'm doing. You're never far. Your eyes are on me. You understand my thoughts from afar. It's as though he's saying, like, you don't need to be up close, sifting through every nuance in the way that I'm thinking and what I'm feeling. Like, from afar, you just look and you know the intricacies of what my internal life is. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. He goes on and on throughout this psalm, cultivating an awareness of God knowing us. And chances are you fall in one of the two camps that I mentioned earlier. Either the thought of God knowing you through and through makes you really fearful, or the thought of God knowing you through and through might be like, yeah, okay, like I can stand and maybe lacking a little bit of the humility needed to know that there's still a lot of you that God wants to transform for his purposes in the world. So, let's think about this. Total honesty with God, paired with radical openness to God and his testing our hearts and correcting anything that may be wrong in us can be the soil rich enough to grow a life of healthy prayer in us individually and communally as a church body. The reason these two things are really important 
flow out of the essence of the Gospel. The Gospel that Jesus came into the world to bring us back into life with God through His death and resurrection and the sending of His Spirit do two huge things that apart from Jesus we don't have access to. They sweep us up into the presence of God. Which according to the Scriptures, that's where life, real life as God intended it's found. There might be all sorts of things that we love about life in the world on a human plane, but we were created for the presence of God. We were created to be immersed in the love and life of God Himself. We're swept up into the presence of God, and we're actually plugged into as well the power of God. We need the power of God to fulfill the purpose of God in our life and to become the kinds of people in the new humanity that Jesus has brought. And so we need both of these two things, God's power and God's presence. As I was reflecting with God on this passage yesterday, I remembered when uh, Kate and I left Seattle 10 years ago to come here to start the commons. Um, We've been deeply wounded by the church we left to come here. And I actually got to drive by the building when we were up in Seattle this last week. Um, And all the memories came flooding back. Some of the most awe-inspiring moments. We saw so many people meet Jesus. And at the same time, some of the most brutal experiences early on in my faith. It's where I'd become a Christian. I went on staff with that church, helped start one of the campuses there. And at the end, at the time of our leaving, felt like a really dispensable, expendable person so that the machine of the church structure could continue to carry on. It's really, really brutal. And as I was reflecting on this passage in honesty with God, one of the things that I realized in reflecting back was that I was so mad coming down here 10 years ago. I was so angry. I was hurt because I had learned in my life that powering through pain was the cleanest and easiest way to deal with it, so I just didn't talk to God about it. I didn't think that it was a part that was even relevant to my life with God. And not until a short while ago, a couple years, when I was on the phone with a spiritual director talking about some of anger that I was experiencing. He said, have you talked to God about that? And I thought, why would that be relevant? And I just stumbled into it, said, all right, trusting your direction. And as I started to pray, the simple words, God, I'm angry. I experienced a kind of presence with God that I hadn't before. That I was able to bring my whole self in that way into His presence. And as I expended all the energy of anger and just felt like (sighs) the exhale, it felt like there was new space in me that had been cleared out for Jesus to come and sit with me. And this last week, God just helped me see as I was up in Seattle that there were still places from my story that I'm still angry about. 
And as I was able to just be honest with God in the midst of that, tears came to my eyes, reliving moments of pain. And at the same time, knowing that God's with me in it, that none of it was wasted by him. That's the kind of honesty, I think, that we need to learn is not off the table or irrelevant when it comes to life with God. In fact, as we were praying before the gathering today, we have at 9.15, we meet in that back corner with a handful of us to pray together for what God might do today. Um, I hadn't even shared what the topic was today, what the text was, and as we were listening and asking, Lord, what is it that you want to do today? Would you give us words or scriptures or images? Someone shared that uh, as they were praying earlier this morning, they saw a picture of a heart that was just really hardened on the outside, like stony, and that God wanted to soften it and give, renew a heart of flesh, a heart that's tender to God's presence. Just believe that that's what God will do for anyone in the room today who feels an area of hardness in their heart, numbness, self-protection. Psalm 139 tells us God already knows us. There's nothing you can hide from Him. But not in a way where He just sees it from far off. He intricately knit you together. Before you existed, you were a dream that he had. Think about that. God dreamed you up and wanted you to exist. You're a you because God wanted you. And that just flies in the face of so much of the self-loathing that's normal in our day. We need some perspective shifts about God and what prayer even is if we want to become people of prayer. There's a book that I was reading had some profound shifts like this that I want to read for us to hopefully create some space and, sh- and expose maybe some of the perspective we bring in here. And then we'll look at four barriers, I think, to honesty with God, and then we'll pray. This is from a book called Where Prayer Becomes Real. Four shifts that they talk about. Prayer is not a place to be good. It's a place to be honest. It's not a place to be good. It's a place to be honest. Prayer is not a place to perform It's a place to be present. So we don't walk into the presence of God trying to present the best parts of us, you know, showing off some religious tail feathers that God can say, I'm happy with that, yeah. But a place to be present and aware before Him. Third, prayer's not a place to be right, it's a place to be known. Prayer is not a place to be right. It's a place to be known. Think about that shift. How many times we're afraid to pray what's going on in us because we know it's wrong? It's like we we don't want it to be true, but we know it's true and feel like we can't present it to God because we'll get, like, reprimanded. But 
who we are is who Jesus died for. It's who God wants. Fourthly, prayer is not a place to prove your worth. It is a place to receive worth and offer yourself in truth. How many people I've talked to over this year where we've been focusing on prayer that just feel deflated and discouraged trying really hard to become a person of prayer and we're failing? It's okay. The worst thing to do would be to cover up, to hide, to give up, to pretend, and instead to get up, dust off our knees, and keep drawing near to God together in prayer. So if those shifts are true of prayer, what are some barriers? What are some hurdles that maybe even Psalm 139 can help us in? Okay, we have some problems with honesty. A few of these, I think, are under the surface, but I think that we'll, we'll all agree that they're there. Okay, the first one is anxiety. Um, anxiety rooted in this belief that we belong to ourselves and our own responsibility. Maybe this resonates with you. The thought, if I just would live at peak optimization in my life, um, everything would go well. It's as though the world around us is orderly, predictable, you put the right inputs in, you get the right outputs out. So, the real factor is you. How well can you live? The reason anxiety is important for honesty and prayer is because when we're anxious, we feel like we can't even pray. There are so many times where I sit down to pray and thoughts come flooding into my mind that feel so urgent, I literally get up and leave praying to go and do them. And 99 times out of 100, there is no life that is on the line. It's fine to just push it aside but I cannot help myself. It's this kind of swirling anxiety in me that can't be okay or still until I go and deal with the thing I'm anxious about. Does anyone resonate with this? Yeah. Anxiety tells us we need to fix our own fears. Feels like we just don't have, to, don't have the time to pray. Anxiety often comes from an assumption that the world is perfectly controlled as a system. But that's not the reality we live in. The world is bigger than us, it's broken and chaotic, and even we ourselves are broken. We're being made new, and yet, life can come crashing down in on you at any moment. You also have a Father in Heaven who provides everything that you need. So Jesus said, what does anxiety add for you? Why be anxious? It's as though he's pointing out that it's ridiculous. It's illogical for us to be anxious. In Psalm 139, David writes that every one of our days is written before it happens. Now, that doesn't mean what he's not trying to say is we're puppets on strings with no agency. But what he is saying is that God has purpose 
and a plan and a context for what your life, where your life will happen, the wiring that he's put in you, and what will happen all around you. And he invites you to participate in the agency that you do have, but the agency that you and I do have is like writing on a page, not like we can write a whole book. So think about that. How much are we anxious about that's us trying to write our own book that we could be satisfied with rather than receive the life that God has for us? I assure you, the life that Jesus has for you is way more satisfying and peaceful than the one that you would have or that the world would put on your shoulders, that culture tells you is the good one, that your parents have told you is the good one. Anxiety comes when our life, what we want, doesn't line up with what God has. How honesty helps us in our anxiety is we're honest with God about the very anxieties that we experience. We give them over and experience the reality that we're not alone. And so I wonder if in that moment for me where I get up and go do something, instead if I were able to say, Lord, everything in me wants to go right now and check my email to see if so-and-so responded to me yet. Everything in me. Would you help me see why that matters so deeply to me? Because what anxiety shows you is where your heart is. Doesn't it? It's a window into what you care passionately about. And so maybe anxiety actually gives you and me the opportunity to bring more of our actual literal selves to God. If we do that, and then if we'd be open to Him helping us to see where our real joy could be found, and that He's trustworthy with our life, maybe He has to move some furniture around in our hearts, we would become people of deeper prayer. Can I actually pray right now for us? Is anxiety something that we live with? God would help us. Lord, we do. We want to put this into practice. We want to invite you into our anxieties. I pray for my friends, for my brothers and sisters here. Um, maybe, maybe those who are not even aware of how anxious they are and yet live in response to their anxieties. Holy Spirit, would you help us? We need you. Help us not to turn away from our anxieties, but to bring them to you. Thank you, Lord, that we can be honest with you in prayer. Amen. So, anxiety. The second one's kind of like it. Um, distractedness. You ever sit down and feel distracted when you try and pray? And then normally my response is just over and over and over again, like divert my attention back to God, back to God, back to God, like ignore the distraction and turn away. When you have three little kids, one thing that becomes kind of like a superpower is like ignoring distraction sometimes. And so I feel like I'm pretty good at it, but if I'm honest, um, I, it still is disruptive to me. 
I feel like there are that many more cares that get put on my shoulders for my kids and for the responsibilities that come about. And so there are all these cares that flood my mind when I sit down and try and pray. And yet, maybe those two, like anxiety, are an opportunity to bring more of ourself to God in authenticity. To be able to say, Lord, this is in my heart and it's rising up to the surface. Would you help me see what's important there? Or would you help me see that I can entrust that over to you? Or would you help me see that I just don't need to care about that at all? Like, 25% of my distractedness is really wanting to be up to date about sports teams that I follow. Like, that's the kind of thing I just don't need to care about so much. And yet, here's like the honest truth. I'm kind of afraid that God's going to tell me, stop doing that. Stop caring about that. You can't have that. And so I want to like keep it a little bit to myself, like keep it to the chest. So God can't tell me what I don't want to hear. So my assumptions are sort of, God just doesn't want me to enjoy things that I enjoy. It's accusation against him, really. And yet, in Psalm 139, David is just going on and on. You've searched me. You've known me. You're good. You made me the way that I am. And so in our distractedness, we can see where our treasure is. And we can trust God to help us as we're honest with Him. So I wonder if as we learn to pray this year and we feel distracted, rather than trying to like turn our eyes from what's distracting us, if we were to say, Lord, this is distracting me right This just came to mind. Is this, you help me in this? Is this perhaps even from you bringing this up? Rather than be defeated by distractedness, what if we were to actually use it as a conduit for greater intimacy and depth with God? Okay. Third. Third barrier. Um, Anger. Mentioned it earlier in my own story. If you're like me, anger feels like one of the most dangerous emotions to let out. Maybe you even grew up in a context or family where anger was like off limits. It was always something that was wrong. I remember there were certain authority figures in my life where if I expressed anger, what I received was anger and ridicule in return. So the lie of anger in prayer is that we need to actually change how we feel so that we can express something to God. That we can't actually be honest with God until we change what's going on in our interiority. But you probably heard it when I read Psalm 139. It's pretty jarring how David prays about his enemies. Did you catch that? When Brian taught us last week, we heard other psalms that are this ruthlessly honest with God. Um, They're sometimes called the imprecatory psalms. They're actually trying to bring curse or pray curse upon our enemies. But this is what he says here. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you? 
God, if only you would kill the wicked. This is in Scripture. What the Psalm's not saying is trying to like instruct us in what is morally right. Okay, So we need to try and understand it on its own terms. What it's not saying is, that's the kind of thing that we ought to pray. What we know it is giving us an example of is, is, is anger and expressing anger to God. That David himself had people that were coming after him, that were opposed to him. And from the context, it's people that actually were claiming the name of God. He says that there are those who invoke you deceitfully. People who name the name of Jesus and yet hurt us are some of the most angering experiences we will ever have. And rather than think we got to get rid of the anger as though it's a fire we got to put out, anger is actually one of the most raw and honest things you and I ever experience. And as we learn to express it to God, we will encounter Him in ways we did not even think He was willing to meet us in. We might actually see that He is angry too at injustice or evil that we have experienced. That He's actually trustworthy to be near and that He's trustworthy to give vengeance over to and to not act in retribution. Like, we don't need to get them back because we see how angry He is that he's the judge, and he's going to do right at the end. Do you see that honesty, even in that place of raw vulnerability that feels like we even can't contain it, could be the very context for learning to pray at all times? Here's the danger. If we don't do that, we actually got to suppress the anger or just leave God altogether in those moments. And what's common knowledge among the psychology community is the fact that anger, suppressing anger leads to depression. Because what you've got to do is push down all of your emotions, which is by definition the experience of depression. Not saying that all depression is caused by that. But if we live in that space, it produces this kind of dysfunctional emotional life in us. So, I wonder where you're angry. I wonder who you're angry at. I wonder what you're angry about. And I wonder if you've ever thought, that's the me i got to bring to Jesus. That's the me that Jesus wants. Because if we'll take our anger to God, you want to know what he'll turn it into? The long-term fuel of compassion for people. Because anger is an energizing emotion. And as we experience God's heart for us in injustice, we start to have his heart for those who are experiencing injustice and pain. I, want, I feel like we should just pray and ask the Spirit's help here too. Lord, would you, um, would you help us to see where we're angry? Would you give us permission to come to you in our anger? And would you even give us a glimpse 
of your own heart, the tears that come down your face, the anger in your heart at the brokenness, the injustice, and the evil in our world that we ourselves have experienced. Help us to be honest with our anger, Lord. Amen. All right, the last one, then we're going to pray. Um, this one is a really obvious one. It's our response towards God when, when we sin. When we do something that we know is against God's heart, His will, His word, when we sin, we want to do anything and everything we can to hide, whether hide the thing that we've done or to hide ourselves from God in His presence. This is, very, this is Gospel 101, right? That God desires us and has made a way for us even, uh, even though we've turned away from Him, we've wandered from Him, we've given ourselves over into sin. For many of us, we weren't permitted to be honest about sin in our family or our community of discipleship early on. If we sinned, people acted shocked or judgmental. In particularly unhealthy environments, behaviors addressed with no asking why questions underneath, like what's temp what tempts you into that kind of pattern? To be able to apply the balm of grace and the gospel and God's love into our hearts. And instead, we just have to stop doing certain things and start doing other things. Now we apply that to prayer. And if you're at all like me, um, well, let me just say this. There are probably two types of people in the room. There are probably those who, when, when you sin, you start like putting your best foot forward. You're like, hyper earn it back, prove it back to God and other people around you. You can be good enough to like make up for it, right? Kate always knows after I've done something to hurt her or to do wrong by her, I am like the best husband on the planet for the next 48 hours. It's like everything that I can do to make it up. It's just this natural hardwiring in my gut. I'm not even thinking about it. Others of us tend to just like flee and avoid the person or the Lord altogether. Right? It's like prodigal son type. I just have to get away from you running away, can't deal with it anymore, so it's either appease the person or flee. Both of those are responses to God rather than honesty before God. And so, what I want for us to know this morning is that in Jesus, remember, He died for you to get you back when you wanted nothing to do with Him. He wasn't even a thought in your mind. And He wanted you then, when you were steeped in sin. How much more does He want you to be with Him when you're a son or a daughter of God? The biggest barrier into His presence is not with Him any longer, but with our own capacity to turn back to Him and be with Him in honesty and prayer. And as David ends the psalm, lead us in the way everlasting. 
What we get to see afresh this morning is that, that Jesus is himself the everlasting way. If we'll just draw near to him and not allow sin or shame or guilt to get in the way of honest intimacy with God and open-heartedness to allow him to transform us, that we'll experience greater depth.